you know your child better than anyone else. Do the things that feel right for your kids specifically while also making space for your own needs and your own mental health instability. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Huffington and I am your host. Today I'm joined by two very special guests that I had the pleasure of meeting and speaking with a couple times. Um, Shalaka and Allison, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I I love this. So we've connected through McGill University. And first, before we actually have this conversation, I'd like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro for supporting the Curious Non podcast. Um, but today we're going to have a talk that I haven't really had enough. Um, we need to talk about two things together. What's happening during pregnancy, you know, and and, and what we need to learn from, from that period, as well as we're going to talk a little bit about attachment. So it's a bit of, of a mix. But I think that um, this is perfect because we really don't talk about that period enough. I do it as well, where we talk about childhood and how important childhood is, but we don't go before that. And we, we need to like take a couple steps back today. Um, so I'd love to introduce you both and, and for both of you to also give us more information. But Shalaka uh, is completing or finishing off your PhD. Is that? Is I just submitted my dissertation no on Thursday. Nice. Congratulations. <laughs> That's Thank huge. You. So yes, she's at the end in child psychology. Um, and what is it you were saying that you study attachment? What is it specifically that you study? Yeah. So my dissertation specifically revolves around predicting attachment. And we're looking at biological predictors such as uh, genetic makeup of the child, how that interacts with exposure to prenatal stress in utero. So when the mother is pregnant with the child and then also postnatal time point, meaning after the child is born, the parenting, and how all these three factors come together to influence the development of attachment when the kids are about, we're studying 36 months, but we're hoping to continue studying, mm. studying other time points too. I love that. It's such important research. And I know that parents have a lot of questions and I know there's a lot of mis misconceptions that we're going to, we're going to talk about very soon. Oh, yeah. uh, Allison is a doctor uh, specializing in internal medicine. Uh, Allison, may you talk a little bit about, more about what you do? And what you specialize in? Yeah, so internal medicine is um, not well known and it's very different depending on where you practice it. So here in Quebec, uh, I work in a, in a smaller center. So I do a lot of, I, I it's like the equivalent of being a pediatrician, but for adults. Mm -hmm. So it's like, <laughs> it's like a, a general, I do a lot of cardiology and nephrology and all of your internal organs. Um, and I have a particular interest in obstetrical medicine, which is uh, taking care of pregnant women when they get sick. Got it. So sp specifically when they get sick, that's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So I don't take care of them when, when well. their pregnancy is fine. <laughs> uh, I don't catch the baby. That is not yeah. my job. So they have their healthcare provider, which can be a family doctor, a, an obstetrician, or a midwife that follows their pregnancy. And if they um, they get diabetes or hypertension during their pregnancy, then that's when I'll see them. Or if they have a pre-existing condition like um, arthritis or inflammatory bowel disease and that needs a particular follow-up during the pregnancy, then that's when I come in. Got it. Super. Like I, I love the work that you guys are doing. So you are the two new hosts of a podcast called Growing Facts Podcast. How, mm -hmm. how did that come about? How did the idea of this podcast, you know, through conversation, through, you know, like what, through a need in society? How, why did you decide to start this podcast? 
Um, so actually, it was Shalaka's idea. So Shalaka has been doing her thesis, and during the course of her studies, she will talk to some of her friends about things that she finds interesting. And a lot of the the friends, so Shalaka and I have known each other since Seja. Yeah, maybe maybe we should we should clarify that we've known <laughs> each other since actually in theory since we were small children. We did yeah. like one year of elementary school together, <laughs> no lost touch, reconnected when we were like seventeen or eighteen. Wow. Um. So we do have a lot of friends in common, but but I think it was uh, this perception, this realization, uh, how much knowledge that had become for me par for the course in uh, in studying my my thesis was not exactly common knowledge. And I thought that that was a pity because the people who should know it the most are the ones who don't know it and the mm-hmm. people who will stress the most. And um, so um, in science, as scientists, we're always talking about knowledge translation. And sometimes the things that we do just end up in a scientific publication somewhere and they don't actually reach the people that they need to reach. And I'm very acutely aware of that because I'm also a clinical psychologist. So I'm, I do both research and, and clinical. And I feel like my job is constantly having to translate scientific evidence to people, but also my clients are children and families. I don't actually see pregnant mothers. I'm not like Allison who sees them all the time. And so I was like, okay, how do we do this? Um, And then I was talking to Allison about this on the phone. Uh, Well, she had already thought about doing something similar in terms of knowledge education, but for professionals in her field, that was the original intention. And she was going to do maybe something similar to a podcast. And I had initially thought, oh, podcast would be a great idea. I'd love a co-host. I was really hesitant to tap Allison on the shoulder and be like, do you want to be my co-host? Because I knew she was really busy and she had to do this other thing. But then as time went on and I thought about it and I mulled it over and then I and then she told me, oh, finally, that other project just dropped. I'm not going to do that anymore. So I'm going to have a bit more time. So then I was like, would you maybe want to come do this with me? And at the same time or almost right around the same time, uh, we found out, well, she found out that she was pregnant with twins. And then I thought, okay, well, this has got to happen because because part of the premise of of the Growing Facts podcast is that I'm doing IVF. So I'm like not even, well, I don't know. I could be, I'm not sure actually if I'm pregnant, it could be. But Mm -hmm. when I started the podcast, I definitely wasn't. And I wanted to talk to someone about that. And Allison was like, ready baked with the twins (laughs) uh, available for us to, you know, co-host. So that's how it happened. It's such an important um, discussion to have with everybody. And I do agree with you that we need to have more of those discussions. And it's so nice to see people in science and medicine coming to share their experience and interviewing people. I've had the opportunity to scan through and listen to some of your podcast episodes. And it's so important and interesting. I'm sure that somebody was expecting, like, we don't hear, these are not the conversations that we hear. Um, What are some things that you think, because I, you know, I was having this discussion the other day and I actually put a post out on Instagram this week about like prenatal classes and how they didn't really prepare me and help me understand. And the time that I had with my OBGYN, he was fantastic, but there wasn't any time. So it was a lot of myself doing research. Um, Allison, there was something that you said in one of your podcast episodes where somebody said, oh, you're carrying low. It's a boy. (laughs) It was something like that, I think which I was told I had three pregnancies and every single time 
I, my, my in-laws are Italian and every single person in that family would analyze my body and look and say mm. this because of that. It's a boy. No, no, it's it's here. It's a girl. <laughs> I mean, I would be assessed every pregnancy, like every couple months, like they would try to figure it out. And, and what, what are some myths out there, I guess, that like are still going on that you want to tackle on your podcast and say like, Hey, that's not true. And let's start with the, let's start with this. Is it true? Can we figure out the the gender or the, the no. you know? Thank you, <laughs> No, absolutely but, not. Oh. And it's so it's so funny because now with the harmony test, like you can do a DNA test really early on in the pregnancy, like oh, around eleven or twelve weeks, to yeah. know the sex of the baby. So sometimes you're walking around and you're twenty five weeks along, and you've known for like three months that you're having a girl, <laughs> and there's this random lady that you meet at the pharmacy who's like, oh for sure you have a boy and you're like what no, no. <laughs> what so there's no evidence about this nothing no, at all let's put all. it to rest everybody that is listening yeah. to this podcast take this little clip i don't know share it with your friends and family and the grandparents <laughs> and the italian aunts and uncles please <laughs> and and yeah. the other thing that we see a lot also that i did speak about is that um so many people do assess my belly and be like oh it's so small oh it's so it's big and everybody has like this opinion about the size of my belly and it's like the only person that I really care about is if my OBGYN thinks that, that it's fine and but, I have I have regular ultrasounds I have but everybody's an OBGYN <laughs> when you're yes. pregnant everybody around you has oh that degree all of a sudden like they know so many opinions yeah. It's hard, you know, even before we go into the science, I mean, that is very difficult when you are pregnant. Mm. Like I had a stranger in an, like in an elevator, like touch my belly. And I was like, <gasps> like, just like, oh, I like was no. shocked. And I was like, did you, and you don't know what to say sometimes. Did you really so, do that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, what? <laughs> but it's always the cute little lady though, which made me yeah, hesitate. Always the adorable older lady that <laughs> you feel really bad telling off. Yes. But I think someone's I think someone's got to do it. I think someone has to bite the bullet and tell off the cute older right? lady. So I, I actually haven't had that. At least, yeah. It happened once. And the guy was a bit drunk. So I'm what? like, wait, hold on. <laughs> well, we were we were at a work function. Yeah. With, oh, with my okay. partner. Okay. And the guy had 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 a bit of alcohol. Yeah. So I'm I'm ex I'm well, that's worse I feel like that's an outlier. Yeah, I know. But still, that's not but, like, but it's it's hasn't happened since, so I don't know. Maybe I have a resting bitch face or something no. that that <laughs> makes people They're stay just like, away. We can't. Yeah, it's, but, they know it's twins. You can't. <laughs> I don't know. And and there's the extension of that that my friend who's had twins last year was telling me is that once they're born. People will stop you on the streets. People will talk to you. People will stop you. And she has had little old ladies poking their fingers in her twin's mouth <gasps> uh, last year. Oh, gosh. Like, we're still in the pandemic. She, and the, the old lady was like, oh, does he have any teeth? Oh, oh my god. Like, uh, oh my god, what? Oh my gosh. My heart's so pounding. My solution, lose. my solution to this is that I will be carrying a fly swatter. 
along with my stroller. That is my plan. Yeah, I want to see this. (laughs) Originally, I was like going to bring, you know, like those big wooden spoons. And I was like, oh, well, that's a bit mean. Is it the electric fly swatter? (laughs) Fly swatter is a bit soft. Electric? (laughs) Oh, that would be great. Like, you don't understand the first time I'm putting electricity on now. But, you know, (laughs) and it's important that we talk about this with pregnancy because this is what's happening. Like, we're in so uncomfortable already with the pregnancy and then with people around us. Okay. Now I know people are listening and they're like, Cindy, get into the science. And I'm like, okay, so let's do this. What is it that, so I, I, I'm going to ask this question pretty openly, but I, I don't know what you'd like to focus on, but basically what is the important part in pregnancy that we're not talking about enough, right? Like we talk about the environment once the child is born, but the environment is also in utero. That's part of their environment. I've heard so many things about like, even drinking like this is something that I still have like discussions with people they're like oh the research says you know you can do this the research says stress mm-hmm. isn't like what which I I feel like stress is one of them that we should be talking about but what is what else is there in terms of topics that we can just touch on a little bit and then people would learn more from your podcast but you know what is what's important during pregnancy Okay, so I'm going to take, I'm going to put on my psychologist hat at this point more than my researcher hat, because mm. I'm thinking from the perspective of someone who just wants to have answers about how to live their life. I think we should talk about general lifestyle in mm. terms of like things that you eat, maybe things uh, you're exercising, your sleep, all that stuff, your stress levels. Uh, let's talk about the alcohol yeah. thing, because I think that that's part of lifestyle. Mm. And, uh, and also the things that we do to make our lives better, like medication, maybe that's a big one. I'm sure you would agree, Allison. Mm-hmm. We also have one about exercise. And the the point that we're trying to make during the podcast is mainly that let's try and figure out what's really evidence-based, like mm-hmm. what are the real things mm-hmm. uh, opposed to what we've just been saying for the last generation. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Because because the other problem, too, is that the under-researching of yeah. pregnant people, right, mm-hmm. is a huge, I mean, it's a problem in the sense that hasn't been done enough, but also in the sense that there are things that we can't, like the alcohol, maybe let's, let's dive into it, let's yeah, talk sure. about the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So the reason that alcohol is a, a complicated subject when it comes to pregnancy is that we cannot do randomized controlled trials <laughs> for alcohol exposure. We're not going to be dosing pregnant women with like, okay, you drink one glass of wine per week. You drink two glasses of wine per week. You do it in the first trimester. You do it in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the second trimester, the sort of control that you need to actually see what is a minimum safe amount of alcohol is just not possible in human women. They've done it in other animals. They've done it in, in monkeys, you know, things, animals that are close to humans. So because that's the case, they say that the minimum, uh, because, because of that, they say that there's no minimum safe level of alcohol. But that being said, that's also, we have women who have drunk at different points in their pregnancy and there's no been no fetal alcohol mm-hmm. syndrome. We have women that barely drank and they still experience fetal alcohol syndrome. And so this is one of those situations where, okay, the research suggests that there's more preponderance of problems when you're exposed more in the first trimester, in the earlier part of pregnancy. But also this idea that if you have a glass of wine once in a while, in your second and third trimester, there's good chances that nothing is going to happen, but we can't guarantee that it yeah, won't. Exactly. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's so it's complicated. Part. Yeah. That's it. I mean, yeah. in the end, what is scary about pregnancy and about the science, I think, is that we are asking people to make choices on the basis of 
conclusions that are still being reached or that are uncertain. And I think people, because we treat pregnancy as this sort of like you're an incubator and you have to make everything perfect and everything has to be great. Everything has to be perfect so that your child is okay. And I think this is a way that we seem to approach parenting also, that yeah. you have to be the perfect parent. Otherwise you're going to mess up your child, but, but th- it's, it's complicated. And then we end up pigeonholing ourselves into these like very narrow, I have to do it this way. And if I don't do it this way, everything is going to fall apart where actually there's a lot more uncertainty. And it becomes kind of, kind of cultish. Like people mm. kind of develop yeah. that identity of being that type of parent. And if you don't have that mentality, then I will forever judge you and you're condemned to the seventh layer of hell. <laughs> but I think that's what becomes really hard, right? It's like, I've seen with my work now with parents for a few years, I think there's always like, there's so many topics, drinking during pregnancy, screen time and young kids, um, sleep training, uh, sugar intake, you know, like there's a few topics where it's either you're for it or you're against it. And nobody kind of says like there might be an in-between, right? And, Mm. And I think that's what's hard because those who say you can't, judge the ones that do and those who don't like it's all, everybody's judging each other so i think it's important that you know you do inform yourself and then you make your own decision but your decision might not be my decision and i feel like parents should just kind of like take care of their own things and and worry about their stuff and you know but when it comes to drinking i just i wanted to bring it up there because i know people say like there's no research on it and i'm glad that you mentioned that shalaka it's because we can't study it we can't do the right yeah. study about that obviously and 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 get to the results and and we should mention that fetal alcohol syndrome is like an absolutely real thing. Like it's yeah, not like yeah. they made up. It, this isn't one of those things. I can and there are some things that seem absolutely made up, mm. but this isn't one of those things that's absolutely made up. The problem is just we don't know. We know too much alcohol is bad. We just don't know what is the safe if there is a safe level and what it is. You touched on one of your episodes, prenatal programming. Many have not heard of this term. We don't have to, again, get into all the details, but just give us a little a highlight of what you learned from that episode and what parents can learn more of if they listen to that episode on your podcast. That is what my research is about. So prenatal programming, there's a bunch of, there's a couple of different names for it. Some call it the developmental origins of health and disease. It's this idea that essentially the um, origins of your development, including your health and your functioning and all those things, don't start after you're born. They start while you're still uh, being developed as a fetus. And that essentially what is happening to you while you are being carried by mm-hmm. by your parent, right? Um, so the idea is that the things that are happening in that moment might change some of the outcomes and might change some of the development. Because in the old days, we used to think that like, no, you're born with your set of genes, like your your genes don't change. Although we do have epigenetic changes and things like that. But we used to think that like, no, all the changes are going to happen after you're born. But now we're realizing, oh, wait a minute. So if you're exposed to more prenatal stress while you're developing, then there's more chance that you will develop this kind of temperament for instance, this is a really well substantiated one, or more chance that you're going to develop depression or anxiety, or uh, more chance that you're going to have uh, XYZ health issue. Mm-hmm. And so that's the idea of programming. And it's not just like negative outcomes too, it's also positive outcomes, mm-hmm. right? It's just the idea that our development after we're born is influenced by what we are exposed to while we are still a fetus. Before we thought that pregnancy was like this black box and that the fetus was cut off from the environment. Mm-hmm. But now we know that the environment really has an impact on the fetus, which which is something that can be scary, but it, it's also something that's very positive. So we know that um, your fetus will will recognize your voice 
And that's so exciting. So you can interact with your baby while he's still in your belly. He'll react to light and to sound. And that's super exciting. But there's also the other dimension where even stress and other things can have an impact. And so that's that's the new thing that we're kind of developing into. So Shalaka spoke a lot about the psychological impact, but there's also um, uh, health issues. So, mm. th- for example, if the mother is... Uh, is malnourished, then there's a higher chance of obesity in the child because the the human body is so fantastic. So they'll have understood, oh, there is this period of starvation, so I have to store more fat. Mm. And so there's a higher risk of obesity afterwards. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget that this is an evolutionarily adaptive thing mm-hmm. for the for the fetus to try to quote unquote predict what what world is it going to be born in and then try to make it in such a way that it is the most suited for that world. And then the problems arise when the world isn't the world outside is not the same as the world inside. And that's when we have more complications. I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone listening. And I know that I've, because I've, I've had a conversation with Dr. Susan King from McGill as well, a few years ago now. And I know that the listeners just kind of hesitated with that conversation because they felt we spoke about the, the ice storm here in Montreal and, and stress during, you know, pregnancy and those who have or or were experiencing stress during their pregnancy for you know x y z reasons felt like they were already setting up their child for failure and they were worried and then there were moms also who said like i just gave birth and i had a really difficult pregnancy with lots of stress and you know i'm a single mom and and now like i'm worried that i've damaged you know these are the words that they were using what are we i remember with dr king she spoke about like you can do a lot in the environment after you spoke a little bit about well you spoke about your research and attachment what are we seeing after so let's say somebody did experience a very difficult pregnancy lots of stress for whatever reasons what can we do once the child is born but even before the even before we get to that the fact that you're experiencing stress during your pregnancy it's not a one to one relationship that your child will be maimed <laughs> Or completely disrupted. Damaged, I think, was the word, right? Yeah, thank you. That's what they're using because they're afraid. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So it's not an it's not an obligatory thing. Mm. It won't definitely go to that. So the 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 studies that have demonstrated that are populational studies. So there is a slightly increased risk. So yes, so there are things you can do afterwards, right, Shalaka? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, this is where all the environment that happens after birth. So there's some really fascinating studies that show that actually when you're exposed to things like prenatal stress, um, uh, when you're a fetus might actually make you more um responsive to positive intervention after you're born than someone who wasn't exposed to prenatal mm-hmm. stress. So this is a hypothesis that's being tested, but I would say we're probably moving past the hypothesis stage and into refining this. And I think that's such a, for me, it's like a, oh, wow, that's that's awesome. Because basically what we're saying is that it's not a unilateral mm-hmm. negative outcome. Mm-hmm. It's that it just maybe programs you to be more sensitive to your environment. But if your environment is thriving, like if it's, if it's nurturing, if it's positive, if you've got a lot of stimulation, if you've got a lot of love if you got great attachment so there's a there's a study that shows there's a few studies that show that secure attachment uh after exposure to prenatal stress will actually result in better developmental outcomes afterwards right and so the fact that you as a parent can be such a powerful uh, moderator of that outcome that you have that you you can change a lot of things and i think sometimes people underestimate maybe they're so bogged down in the fog of 
parenting and how complicated it is and how many choices you have to make. And you're like, oh my God, I don't know if any of these choices are good. Yeah. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And I think that people, they, they, they can't see the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And what the forest is, is that if you are a parent who is, who loves your kid, who's doing your best to provide an environment, like, yeah, there's going to be a million ways to parent for sure. Mm-hmm. But if you're a parent who's doing your best to be responsive to your kid's needs and to provide an environment and to have them know that they are loved, that's probably the single most powerful thing that any parent can do. And never underestimate the impact of having that kind of attitude towards your kids on on mitigating and possibly making your kids excel and do better than the kids who weren't exposed to prenatal stress. I love that you said that part because now I know, you know, some parents that worry about is it is this the right toy, the right chair, the right crib, the right whatever it is. And they we worry, you know, like I did it too as a first time parent. Like every little thing, will this help or not? You're like, what am I doing? Am I damaging my child? Am I doing something wrong? But it's the bigger picture and it's really the nurturing part and taking care of them and loving them is almost soothing if something did happen to you before, right? During the pregnancy. Not soothing, but like it heals or it helps take care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, The word attachment, we need to focus on that word a little bit because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what that is and that, you know, um, I hear it come up when somebody has a newborn. I've, I've seen this on social media where a mom was judged and, and there were like pretty nasty comments because she was cooking and, and the baby was in a little chair beside her rather than being in um, a baby carrier on her. And somebody said, you know, don't you care about your child's attachment and don't you want a strong attachment? But I don't, I don't believe that having your child in a baby carrier is, is what the attachment is. Um, but let's let's talk about what that is, because it's brought up very often in the first year of a child where, you know, are you holding your baby enough? And if you don't, it, you won't have a strong attachment. Are you um, putting them in daycare? You're not going to have a strong attachment if they cry when you leave. Like I, these are the things that I've heard, which is why I'm seeing those specific examples and like sleep training. If you sleep train, you're ru- ruining the, the the attachment with your child. What can we tackle <laughs> in, in all Lord. of those things that I've heard? <laughs> oh, Cindy, where to begin? So I, I want to first highlight that I think some of the confusion also comes about from that term attachment parenting. I don't know who came oh, yeah. up with this term, mm. but I just want to say that attachment is a description of a relationship and not a state that you are ascribing to attain, that hoping to attain. Attachment is a description of a relationship between two people, and it is specific to the to the child and the caregiver in question. So that's the first myth that I want to dispel. Like you're not trying to gain attachment. No, everyone has attachment. People just have different types of attachment, mm-hmm. first of all. Mm-hmm. Second of all, I would love to have the confidence of all these parents who know exactly what is going to create secure <laughs> attachment because I wouldn't have written my thesis about it if it was so <laughs> damn sure. But everyone out there is like, they know got so many ideas. They know. And I'm like, wow, please let me let me in on the secret yeah. because I would love to be so certain. <laughs> and 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 so the the reality of the matter is is that. I think one of the things that people forget when it comes actually first let me let me dial back and let me describe what attachment is. Mm-hmm. Attachment is the relationship between the child and the caregiver and this is true also when you're an adult like attachment doesn't go away after you're a child you still have attachment to your caregiver when you're an adult and it is essentially a mechanism for the child to regulate their stress. Mm-hmm using the parent. So when they're really newborns, when they're like a couple of months old, their stress comes from the fact that they're hungry. They're hungry and they cry and it's uncomfortable or they poop and it's uncomfortable and they cry. And what they learn over time is that when I'm uncomfortable and I cry, my parent will come 
and make that go that this blob, this amorphous blob that yeah. is my 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 parent, will come and will make that go away, and I will feel better. And then as they grow older and as their brains mature, then they'll start associating that person with feeling better and the sources of distress are going to evolve. It's not just going to be, I'm hungry. It's also going to be, oh, I'm scared. I'm, an, I'm alone in a dark room. And I know that, okay, if I cry, my parents going to come, come in and help me. What is missed from this conversation is the fact that there's also things like biology and personality that play mm -hmm. into attachment. So it's not just what the parent does. You can have two different kids, same parent, and the same parent does the same thing with both kids. But one of the kids is really, really sensitive and really needs a lot of reassurance and is really anxious and is really clingy with their parent. And the other kid will just be like, fine, no matter what. And the parent can do the exact same thing with both. And they can have a really secure attachment with the one kid who's fine because he's going to be fine no matter what. And with the other kid who's really anxious, you could still end up developing an anxious attachment. Mm -hmm. And it won't be the fault of the parent because there's no such thing as there's no fault in this situation, right? It's just a description of that relationship of the interaction between the way that a parent is responding to the child's needs and the way that the child is perceiving the needs also, because children start developing their own interpretations of their caregivers. So so I think it's important for people to understand that that sometimes you can do all the things that you try to do and all the things that you want, and you might not have what is a secure attachment, but also, is that necessarily the end of the world? Like, is does that mean that your child is going to be messed up forever? No. Yeah. And I love that you're saying that because see, I think from the, again, I have the pleasure of speaking with so many parents. So I hear the language and I, I find like we're using that to label kids and label whether a parent has performed well so far. You know, like even I think back to after having my own first child, my grandmother would say things like, stop holding her when she cries. Like if you, if you, if you don't respond to her every time, she'll become independent. My my daughter was two weeks old. <laughs> and but she would say, and and this is not common. Um, this is not uncommon. I've mm -hmm. heard this said many times from people, you know, their grandparents, their own parents, that you need to let them become independent. So let them cry. But then on the other end, you you know, when I'm speaking to parents, they say like, there's people judging if you go to them too much. Then there's people judging if you don't attend to them too much. Or then there's guilt in the parent. Like, do I go pee or do I like attend to my crying baby because I don't want to damage their attachment? Like, so I think that we're just using this so much to label everything that's Absolutely. happening in the child's yeah. life. So and and then now also the, the the what I've been hearing a lot about is like, associating that and the relationship we had with our parent and saying like, well, this is why my relationship sucks <laughs> or this is why I have an anxious attachment. It's like my mother's fault or my father's fault. So I love that you brought that all in because I know lots of parents are kind of having this aha moment of like, okay, like it's, it's bigger than we realize and we don't have all the answers to it. No, no. Yeah. I mean, especially like if part of it is our genes, like what are you going to do about that? Right. Mm. It is what it is. Mm. And the other thing, too, that I think is really important to highlight that people, I think, unless you studied it, maybe you don't realize that that's the case is the fact that the the fundamental tension between the, your child soothing themselves and you soothing your child, like that tension is a, is a line that you have to walk constantly as your child, ex as your child grows. But the point of that tension is that when they are able to self-soothe, then they are capable of going out and exploring in the world. If they never learn to self-soothe, if they never learn to regulate themselves, then how are they going to go and learn and go in the playground and play with other kids and go to school and, and like have these challenges in life that are important for maturing. So the tension as a parent lies in trying to figure out when is the time 
to go in and help them soothe? And when is the time to let them do their thing? And so you as a parent are always a secure base, but the fact that they experience emotional distress is not a bad thing. Mm. It's necessary for human development. And so then, and I know that's not helpful to parents because it's like, well, okay, well, how do I know? And I'm, I'm here to say, I don't know. That's yeah, but it's good. No, but that's research. And that's a good thing because I feel, I find that there's a lot of people out there making money because they know they have the answer to the question that you don't, you don't have an answer to. And, and, but the, the, the reality is that research does not have that answer. So we need mm-hmm. to say that. Um, because I think parents listening right now are probably asking also like, so what's the blueprint? Like, give me the recipe of like a secure attachment, but it, I'm assuming it doesn't exist yet. <laughs> I think what Shaka has been saying is that there is no one size fits all. Mm. So when people are trying to sell you a book or saying like we have the miracle cure, it's it's not going to work for everybody. And it's highly suspicious if anyone tells it you is. that they have the solution to everything. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, in the 1800s when people had like this bottle of this elixir that like fixed everything. The one, the single bottle. The that yes. Fixed all yeah. the it will not work with <laughs> every there... kid. But yes. and, and people are trying to be helpful and they're like, well, I did this with my kid and that really helped. And maybe it is helpful, but maybe it's not appropriate for your child. Mm-hmm. And it also has to be um, age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. So what your grandmother was telling you with a two-week-old baby is definitely not appropriate, but would have been appropriate with a five-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens if like you have a six-month-old or six-week-old or a two-month-old and you you need a break and you're exhausted? I know that some parents, even parents in the United States that I've spoken with, it's like they're going off to daycare very early and they're wondering like, is that why we're seeing like a change in like behavior in kids? Like, are we again as a society, like, is this bad? And again, I know we might not have the answer, but I'm just, I'm putting everything out there because I know these conversations are being had in society and some people say they have the answer. So, you know, whether you leave your, your six week old with your parents, you know, uh, to to go watch a movie or to go out to the restaurant, is that damn like what is is do we know what's damaging in terms of that early environment or we're still it's really all question marks well we don't have a, we don't have a specific answer mm-hmm. but i will say if we're going to tie it back to things like um parental lifestyle and mm-hmm. parental health i will say that universally an overly stressed anxious sleep deprived mm-hmm. um you know parent is generally not going to be Yep. A very effective parent. And that's why we say to take care of the parent first. It's true. You you do need that. Yeah. I wish more people would have told me that at the beginning. This was like seven years ago. But, you know, you you kind of fall into this rut of, of if it doesn't matter what I need, it's only what my child needs. And it's, you know, if, you, if you're stuck in that sort of cycle, like you have to get out of it and realize it's not selfish to want to take a walk and to breathe a little bit. Um, so it's, I'm I'm happy you mentioned that. It's uh, absolutely yeah. And and if we're bringing it back to attachment, like let's not forget that again, a little bit of distress from your child is not going to scar them. Like that's not it's not going to give them, uh, you know, horrible nightmares or PTSD or something. If you go to the movies and leave your kid with your parents for you know in a, a safe hours. environment. If it's exactly. a, yeah, as long as yeah. I'm assuming we're talking about a safe environment here. Yes, we're not like yeah. putting your crib out on the street and being like, bye. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm just so glad you're saying all this because I do know lots of parents have guilt around this and, and mm-hmm. wondering again, and it all comes back to how much conversation there is around attachment and, and that so, so many people have the answer to what damages and what doesn't. And I'm using that word damage because that's what they're saying. What is it that parents or, or what do we have to, what's the take home message from this conversation around attachment? Like, what would you like 
parents to follow or or to have on top of their mind when it comes to having these conversations with people around attachment? I think the take-home message here is that you know your child better than anyone else and that you know the kind of personality that they have and you know the kind of kid that they are and you can do the things that feel right for your kids specifically while also making space for your own needs and your own mental health and stability and the fact that you have to put your baby down sometimes is okay and uh it's probably a super unsatisfactory takeaway but that's no that's 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 what we have i think it's fine yeah that's all we have i think right now I think one of the hard things that we have in 2022 or 2023 um, is that society puts so much pressure on parents, a lot on moms um, to to be perfect. And oh my God, if you're going back to work too early, that's not good. But you have to feed your child. You had to, you have to put a roof over his head. So there are, there's a limit to the choices that you can make. And it's, you have to give yourself a break. And if you are just stressing out about everything, um, that's not good for you. That's mm-hmm. might not be good for your baby either. So you want to make sure that you have an outlet just to make sure that you have perspective. And yeah. if if your baby is six weeks old and he's got colic and he's colicky mm-hmm. and you are freaking out and you you can't take it anymore, the best thing you can do is forget the attachment the best thing you can do Mm. is to remove yourself from that situation yeah yeah Yeah. that's really good advice because there's again guilt that it's selfish and you're not taking care of your baby but in that moment you need to take care of yourself as long as they're with somebody else and they're fine you can step away from that moment Yeah. yeah and also i mean the fact that it tends to be women Mm. who are who either experience the guilt or have the guilt laden on them i think is really significant too because like wow that mom guilt seems to start from pregnancy onwards right like it seems relentless and definitely not uh men don't seem to i'm sure they do experience it but i I think society doesn't seem to heap as much expectation that you will feel bad Mm. if you don't act like the perfect parent, quote unquote, Mm. also. And I think it's important to talk about cultural expectations because let's not forget that attachment is a mechanism between environment and biology. But in our culture, we're expecting parents to be, say, primary caregivers, et cetera. But in another cultural context, if the people taking care of the child are not necessarily the biological parents, then it's not something that is fundamental between the DNA. It's not like the shared DNA of the child and the parent is what bonds them in attachment. No, it's the recurring interactions. And that could be with a grandparent. It can be with, with a caregiver, it or- with a nanny. Exactly. Exactly. And so we're very, I think, entrenched in our cultural perspective that like, okay, the parents are the ones who must take care of the baby and meet all the needs, et cetera. But there are other cultures where it's different mm-hmm. and you don't see like all these children being super messed up from like, you know, attachment problems, whatever. Like, no, they have the same rates of anything else that we do here. On the contrary, you know how when we say it takes a village, Mm. like if you have a good social circle, it's going to be so much easier on you and it's probably going to be better for your children too. I was going to say when you were talking about culture, like I've spoken to some people that say like in the like in the old days and in some cultures as well, like there was a lot of that community, a lot of that mm-hmm. when somebody's expecting a child that they were taking care of. And once the baby came out, like they had like a whole group of people around them cooking and helping them and supporting them. We're missing that. That's not mm-hmm. 
really present anymore. And especially now with the pandemic, so many um, parents had children and were completely alone in, in their journey as new parents. How do we, you know, I've tried to explore this as well in terms of like creating a Zoom meeting for new parents or, you know, trying to have like, we call them weekly family meetings. But it's hard because we can't show up wherever we want either as a new parent. We might have a crying baby. We know like people would go on and off of the Zoom call. How do we create you know, I read some of Dr. Bruce Perry's work as well, where he talks about like community and, and connection and the importance of that. But how, I don't know if there's an answer to this. I'm just putting it out there because how do we create that community again and, and have from what you've read, is that community really important as well? So I can't I can't tell you any about the, anything about the research, but yeah, one of the things that we do know is that during the pandemic, women who were isolated found it really hard mm. and had an increased rate of postpartum depression. Mm. So I think it's it's something that we're, we're going to have to make a conscious choice about mm. and try and be... Um, it, I think maybe the government also has to make decisions. So here in Quebec, we're pretty lucky with our uh, materna maternity leave, um, which I know in the States, it really sucks. Oh, uh, if you're lucky, you get six weeks. Yeah, I know... I had put out a survey and most moms got four weeks um, if they were lucky. And, and that's terrible. Like you, your body has gone, has undergone so much, so much change. Mm. Like how can you be on your feet and ready to go? And it's going to got to be so hard to leave your baby on the side. I know my mother um, was a business owner. So I know at six weeks um, she, she went back to work and mm. I know that was really hard for her. Mm. Um, and, uh, people who who don't have a lot of family clothes that can help, that's also super hard. Mm. So I think maybe, hopefully, in the next years, some of the things will change. It's nice because now we have, there's a, a few politicians who are women and who, in, in their childbearing years, and who bring, who bring the rabies over to parliament. And so yeah. hopefully there are some changes that will improve things um now breastfeeding in public is a bit easier there are some policies that are improving social media can help sometimes and also be terrible connect, but it can be it, it can be the worst <laughs> um because but people are help. so judgy yes. so so you really have to find your space for you yeah. um here where i live in victoriaville there's this really cute um community organism which is la maison des familles so literally mm -hmm. like the family house i don't know how if there are a lot i have elsewhere. one here in laval that i attended yeah there was uh it was in famine there was la maison la maison vimont i think it was and okay. it was the same thing like once i had my kids it's free it's a community center and you were able yeah. to go there and just connect with other parents so uh, they have classes nice. they hmm. have they have people who who are there to answer questions to help out they're people who are generally like very positive and empowering and just for people who don't have many connections and who need to be told that everything is normal mm. that can really help so those community services really help out mm -hmm. also i was just remembering our interview with uh dr herba where she talked about the fact that all of the traditional milestone, like for instance, having a shower when someone's pregnant, like during COVID, because they did that study about um, 
pre and postpartum during COVID and how so many of the rituals and the milestones that we hold around pregnancy, around birth, whatever, that maybe have fallen by the wayside and maybe they seem a little silly. Like I know I'm, I tend to be more cynical and I tend to roll my eyes a lot of traditions (laughs) and I'm like, Oh, we don't need that. You know, I'm the kind of like really cynical person who doesn't celebrate Valentine's day with my husband. Cause I'm like, we don't need a day to show our love. (laughs) I I say that leading up to it. And on the, on the day of, I expect something. (laughs) You're like, where's my chocolate? (laughs) Chocolate, I want my flowers. (laughs) Um, But, but I think that when it comes to things like uh, pregnancy and birth and post-birth, I think they serve a really important Mm. societal place Mm. because they mark milestones. They gather people together. You get to see the person. You get to see the the baby. You get to check in. I think you literally, it's an opportunity for you to check in with that person when before you might've just been texting them or maybe having a phone call with them. Now you see them face to face and you're like, oh, you're, you're struggling. Let me help you. Like, Mm. you know, Mm. like that, that idea. And, and Allison, we talk about this so much all the time, this idea that, it's not just sometimes like, okay, maybe you can't breastfeed the person's child for them. But <laughs> what you can do is you can liberate them in order to give them the time and space to do the things that they need to do. So yeah. you can cook some meals for them. You can bring over stuff. You can watch their their other kids if they have other kids. Mm. Like that, the circle of support, the circle mm. of care surrounding the person. I think that one of the ways that we can, that we can engender more of this well-being in parents is to ask yourself, how do I fit into other people's circles? Mm. You know, because I think we are very directed inward often. And uh, I think the person who is a new parent is not the person who should be sitting and trying to figure out, oh my God, how do I build community? Like, no, you're just trying to keep this young thing alive. (laughs) Do you have time (laughs) to sit and like, call organisms and whatever. No, you don't. You're just trying to not like drop your baby on the kitchen floor. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, not that I'm projecting ahead or anything, but 100% I'm going to be afraid of (laughs) dropping my baby once I have one. But so I think that like, if we, as like, as friends, as partners, as, as family, as like, heck, maybe you went to a yoga class with someone and you connected with that person Mm -hmm. and now they're pregnant and you're like, how could I help them? You can Mm -hmm. always look up, you know, yoga classes that they could do after they've, they've had the the baby. Like there's so many things that can be done where we can structure and support and help the people who are in the center of it all in the eye of the storm. Mm. And um, that could be a way of making the communities more easily accessible mm. to them. You mm-hmm. know, one of the things also is that um, I think we're, we're not so much used to babies anymore. Like we what do you mean <laughs> well we we don't have those big families so like oh um, i see what you, yes it's true so so yeah like i've i i have friends that have kids but like i before living my own pregnancy i wasn't really sure how to help them how mm-hmm. to be a support and we're just not really used to it and we're also society is kind of trying to normalize pregnancy in a way that like pregnancy is a normal part of life and you should just go through it and not ask for any accommodations or basically just suck it up and yeah. go and do your work and do everything and go yeah. be a super mom and yeah. and your productivity should not be decreased and you should do everything and so it's kind of hard to know when to step in or what mm-hmm. to do to help mm-hmm. um so for so my pregnancy went is going super well so I don't, I don't need help guys. It's fine. But for, <laughs> for afterwards, like I'm going to have twins. I will need help for sure. 
So my plan to fully communicate this is that I am going out and I am buying a whiteboard and I will be writing the tasks of the day, things to do. So so that'll help my partner to -hmm. to know what he has to do. And if we have visitors that day, well, they can go look and pick what they want to do. They can check one off. That's smart. That's so good. We were actually thinking of making a, a point system. So be like, if you take out the trash, that's two points. If you wash the dishes, that's five points. And when you make it to 10, then you get to hold the baby. Oh, okay. <laughs> Putting a new it. meaning to word incentivizing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'll let you know in a couple of months if we Let me know how it goes. <laughs> I, I I absolutely enjoyed this conversation with you guys. Thank you for the work that you are doing and for the podcast. Um, I think we need a follow up because I had a lot more questions, but we're 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 approaching an hour now. Um, Allison, good luck with 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 the delivery and with the you know I, I want to touch base with you and and see how it's going. But good luck with everything at the beginning, and and Shalaka, good luck with you too. I I hope everything goes well and that. You know, the, it's nice. To, I, I'm I'm so excited to continue listening to your journeys and on your podcast and learning more about like what's going on in your lives and how you have such different processes. And I, I we all need to hear that. We need to, you know, just have these conversations. And you guys are having it, so thank you. Thanks thank for having you. us. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having us. To everyone listening, please take a moment to review the podcast and rate it. Um, And I will see you on Instagram at curious underscore neuron. Have a beautiful and wonderful week. And please remember, parents, that you matter. See you next week.